What's good, people? Welcome to the Scaling Research Podcast. My name is Roy Opato Olande, and I'm your host. This podcast is for people who want to learn how to successfully scale research at their companies. You'll hear from folks in research ops and UX research as they unpack practical advice from their experience. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Dave Hora. Dave runs a research consultancy appropriately named Dave's Research Company. And he's done research in-house and as a consultant for over a decade. Dave is a deep thinker with a wealth of experience. In this episode, we talk about his path to independent research after working for five startups in nine years, the role of research and how that definition impacts democratization, UXR today versus a decade ago, research versus learning, and who owns rigor? There's lots to unpack, so let's jump in. Well, Dave. Welcome to the Scaling Research Podcast. I feel like this has been such a long time coming, so thanks for hopping in. Yeah, super cool to be here. Thank you, Roy. Yeah, we were just saying, I think the first time we met was when I was doing, I think I was hosting a session and doing content advising for the UXR Conf. And it seems like that was like two years ago, but it's more like four, four five years ago. Uh, I guess time and COVID is just a little a little trippy. But yeah, it's been a while since we originally said hello in person. Yeah, I think that was 2019 when UXR Conf was called Strive. I don't remember what I talked about, but I remember you helping oh. me through my content woes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually so interesting to to chat to people, but also particularly for you because... End up realizing I'd read some of your writing already, and so when we met, I was like, "Oh, I actually have read your stuff, and I've thought a lot about some of the things you've already said." So that was, yeah, that was this meeting of online world and in person world. So, yeah, it, I'm I'm looking forward to the next. I'm not sure when it will be in person again, but yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride since then. It's been a while, yes. <laughs> so we're gonna spend. A good amount of time today diving into the often controversial topic of research democratization. But before that, I want to make sure me and everyone listening can learn more about you and also maybe a bit of your path into this field. But first up, let's do a few quick fire questions. Mm. Um, so let's go for this. This should, should, should be quite easy. Let's see where we go. First one, where were you born? Michigan, United States of America. And where do you currently live? Porto, Portugal. Ooh, very big difference. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Cake or pie? Wow, pie, certainly. Texting or talking on the phone? Voice notes. Ooh. Is that allowed? That's allowed. I like okay. it. What's your favorite day of the week? Wow. Uh, perhaps Thursday. Why Thursday? There's a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. And all of the hard work is usually done by Thursday. I like it. Are you more of a rom-com or action movie person? Oh, um, I'm 50-50 when it comes to those categories. <laughs> you can do whatever. <laughs> I like it. Your favorite music artist right now? 
Wow, I've been listening to old banjo players. Tommy Gerald from North Carolina. Um, a weird flashback from when I took banjo lessons in Berkeley, California. And for work, a lot of Chopin uh, on the piano. Nice. I, I can't say I've listened to banjo music, but this this should this could be a good intro into it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend you start there. Would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you some some pointers or some places to look after this. Very nice. Favorite holiday destination right now. Favorite holiday destination, maybe uh, not so far from where I am right now. Just jaunting up north to Galicia, Spain. Early mornings or late nights? Late nights, certainly. Early mornings are historically tough and also currently tough. Smooth or crunchy peanut butter? Where I live, it's particularly difficult to find crunchy, so it just hasn't been a part of my life. Mm. Smooth. So you're forced into smooth. Okay. I mean, forced is a strong word. First... <laughs> you're, com- you're comfortable with smooth. Yes, certainly. Hotels or Airbnbs? Wow. The pendulum is starting to swing back from Airbnbs to hotels. Um, but Airbnb is the primary first look. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Dark chocolate, hands down. All right, into the last two here. You're based in Europe, so this should be interesting. Berlin or Amsterdam? Oh, goodness. I lived for one and one half years in Berlin. Uh, I quite like it. The most enjoyable summers to be had in Berlin. Uh, And the winters are a nightmare. Long, Mm -hmm. interminable, never-ending, gray, cold slog. Mm -hmm. And I haven't spent much time in Amsterdam, so I'll say Berlin. Okay, Berlin for the win. The last one, favorite food treat right now? Favorite food? Food treat, yeah. Treat? Something that's more of a treat, less less a meal. Uh, there's a cafe that opened up near me, and they have the best salted caramel and walnut buns. And I allow myself one per week for breakfast. And because I was coming on to record with you today, I had that for breakfast. <laughs> I'm glad to help with the indulgence. <laughs> so immediately, I think, you know, in Portugal, I think of those custard, custard mm. cream tarts. Is, de nata. Are those as big in Portugal as they are outside of Portugal? I feel like Portugal is known for them, but are they actually a real thing that people eat sort of quite frequently? They are a real thing. They exist everywhere (laughs) the frequency with which the locals consume them is something that i'm not so sure about okay definitely the tourists go for them more but locals will have them with a coffee when the time is right there uh there's always a decent batch in the store i go to down the road here and once in a while it comes into my mind because i'm from kenya and people think certain things about kenya and I look at those and think, like, are these one of those things that's been exported and no one in Portugal actually eats them, but Portugal is known for them. Uh, so, 
yeah, in, interesting that you you don't have much insight into that. It's not something that people talk about or eat. Let me say they're real. When I go to the local bakery or cafe, um, it looks like the traditional Portuguese breakfast is just a toast with butter more than the sweet things. But there are always pastel de nata there alongside ah. whatever else you may want. Very nice. Well, thanks for sharing. I, I feel like I know more about Portuguese treats and you. So <laughs> that's that's a win. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit and talk. Let's actually talk about your kind of work, maybe rather your path into research, and then we'll get into this hot topic of democratization. Maybe coming yeah. out of high school or coming out of college, what kind of work were you doing originally, like right out of school? The first work that I did out of school was application database management for a federal government contractor. And I maintained, monitored Oracle 10 databases and J2EE applications that managed the federal court's money. Oh, wow. It was horrible. <laughs> Like in, in terms of boring or, or just, yeah, how, how was it horrible? Yes, it was um, horrible, sort of like manual work by design because our contracting firm could charge the government more money, more billable hours. And mm. things that I did to try and increase our efficiency were actually frowned upon because it would reduce our ability to say manually QA every application update for 40 to 80 hours. Oh, that's um, painful. And the end user wasn't a real consideration in this kind of government contract. Mm -hmm. I had come out of school in um, an appropriate field for our kind of work, cognitive science and human computer interaction. And I'd never had a really good understanding of what the work would actually look like in industry. I felt like I got a very academic look at the field. Mm -hmm. um, so without knowing what to do or what jobs were available, I became a technical consultant at first um, and after a year and a half of that, I, I wised up, moved to San Francisco and tried to find my way into the UX world. So what did that look like? What, what did you do first to try and get into this world? I had had a talk with somebody who was in San Francisco, who was a designer at a small mobile startup. He said to me, your school portfolio looks interesting. Obviously your current work isn't related. We might be interested to talk to you about a job, but we wouldn't do that unless you were already in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco. I talked to that guy and I got a six month contract as an interaction designer. Wow. Okay. So that worked out first, first step in, but that was an interaction design. You're currently in research world. So how did that yes. evolve from that first role into what you currently do now? It happened quite quickly. Uh, I was designing mobile applications for parents to find their children on carrier family plans before we had phone GPS. So there was mm. a lot of cell tower triangulation and radius radii of uncertainty being expressed on the interface. And in the course of designing, I had so many questions about what was actually going on, what the parents were trying to do uh, and what information they needed that we didn't have a way to answer. I didn't design particularly well or fast as they wanted. And so at the end of that contract, they said, we don't think it's going to work out for you to be a designer here, but if you'd like, you can be our first researcher. And I said, wow, great. That sounds quite nice to me. What exactly does the researcher do? 
<laughs> they said, well, <laughs> you're going to find out and you're going to tell us. <laughs> That's for you to tell us, Dave. Yeah. But I, that doesn't, I haven't heard of a story like that where someone said, hey, this thing, this role we hired you for isn't quite ideal, but we have this new thing that we need to figure out. And you seem to be, you seem to be someone who can do that. I guess what they, why did that happen? How did, I guess, how do they see that in you? I think, um, and maybe this is a thread that runs through a lot of my work in thinking about how research fits anywhere. I spent so much time trying to understand broadly what was going on in that organization. Like what decisions were we making and why, how did it all fit together? And even though I was not, um, let's say particularly technically capable as an interaction designer, they could tell that I was invested in trying to advance what we were doing and had started to build an understanding of it that was useful enough to the point to help others make sense of their work in talking to me about mm -hmm. what was going on. And when you have that, say that level of investment and that level of integration, I think it's a very strong platform uh, yeah. now in hindsight, like a very strong platform to work from and trying to figure out or negotiate how and where you work in an organization. Very interesting. So you've, so that started your first research role essentially in house, but I know you've, you've sort of been in house and sort of on the outside. Uh, you talk to me about the progression, maybe the back and forth between, um, starting off there in house. I think you, you've dabbled other places in house versus doing your own thing. How has that journey evolved for you as a researcher? Yeah. The bird's eye view is that I was the first researcher in house at five companies in San Francisco over the course of about nine years, spent almost a year trying my first independent consulting role, uh, mm -hmm. really sort of just trying to back away from in-house. I still a fairly impatient person and realized that the time scale of the change that I wanted to see in organizations was things that I thought could or should happen in months, two months or six months, really like two to four year changes. Um, mm. I, I realized that at the time I didn't have the patience, didn't really want to work on those cycles. So I tried consulting. My first year of consulting was really kind of a grab bag of design projects, strategy projects, and um, regular old-fashioned research projects. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, but I actually wanted to move to Europe. So it was about 2019. And mm -hmm. the best way to do that was to find a company that would take me there. Yeah. Uh, so I found a full-time <laughs> role in Berlin that relocated me, got me a blue card. Um, it didn't work out. I lasted 10 months there. That was my first and only time working on somebody else's research team. Ah, wait, yeah, sorry. Cause you were first yeah. in at other places. I was the first five other times. And so after 10 weeks there, a different company that I had previously interviewed with was still looking for someone to establish their research program. Mm -hmm. That was ResearchGate, a scientific network for academic researchers. And I spent almost two years at ResearchGate, I think, maybe a year and a half, helping mm -hmm. them build out their program. Um, and then I really came to a firm conviction for the purpose of a uh, variety of work and the lifestyle that I wanted to be living, um, the flexibility that I thought I might need to say work a two-month sabbatical of the wine harvest every year. 
hmm. that uh, I would go independent and try to make it work for at least five and hopefully 10 years. That's quite the journey. It's very cool. So you've seen, it's interesting, you've, you've been first in at a whole bunch of places. You've worked in-house at a, a few other joints and also done consulting. So I think with that experience, you've seen research in quite a number of settings, right? And I think this is a good segue into talking about this hot topic. And I think so the tip of the tongue for everyone who not only leads research, not only leads research ops, but works in this field, which is research democratization. Again, I think some of your experience is going to be really helpful and guiding here. But let's let's start high level. And before we get into some of the nitty-gritty, how do you, when you think about research democratization, how do you think about this term? How do you define this term? I think the way that you approach democratization depends on what it is that you believe research is doing. And I found uh, through work and workshops that there's a pretty broad range of their sort of the, from the fullest expression of user-centric UX, we are here to provide empathy and provide the voice of the user to a slightly more mercenary perspective, which I think is the end of the spectrum that I'm on right now, which is uh, user research is like one more necessary and important component of the product development process. And when it's done well, the team is better connected to the user context and they build product better and faster. Hmm. In that light, um, my definition of democratization essentially stays on my side, this side of the spectrum. We're allowing the team members to help themselves in getting access to understanding and interpreting the user context that they need to better inform and accelerate how they're making product services, whatever it may be. That That's helpful because I mean, I've actually thought much about that first question you touched on. What do you believe research is doing? And I think it's easy, the conversations I've had or observed about democratization tend to start with the application, right? How do we democratize? And not as much thinking through that first question you touched on, like, what do you believe research is doing? Why do you think, maybe you've had, you've had different experiences, but I, I don't think I've had as many conversations about what do you believe research is doing compared to research democratization and its application. Why do you think folks jump straight to how do we democratize versus what do you believe research is doing? Hmm. There is a few reasons. I think job security is a big reason that the democratization conversation is happening as it is right now. Hmm. And when your view of research is that research on its own, like in a vacuum, um, is good, useful, important, and necessary. Then when we talk about something like democratization, we're really talking about like trying to give away a part of 
what it is that we are. And so it becomes a very important, uh, very close to the heart of one's professional identity. Mm-hmm. I think that really elevates the conversation. Um, whereas when you look at research as an accelerant, like a necessary ingredient to developing products, I think then democratization almost rather than being a capital D topic just folds into, okay, we're doing this ourselves, but how do we help this happen at scale? Yeah. Yeah. I think the job security one is, I think it's pertinent, especially in the environment we're in right now, right? If if we were talking three, four years ago, it was sort of a thing, but now it is acute. It's urgent. When you hear about layoffs, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I see a fair amount of, research teams getting dissolved right yeah it comes back to like what is the real value here how do we how do we stand out and how do we make a contribution that is unique in this environment within which we work so i think it's an obvious it's a very obvious step to go well if other people are doing what we're doing that doesn't make us doesn't make us look very good it doesn't make us seem like we are we're the standout player in this space. How, and I think that's a reasonable place to be, right? I think so. it's reasonable to have these thoughts about, oh, like my value isn't quite as high as say a role like a designer where maybe there's actually an assumption we can get into. You'd look at a designer and say, oh, a designer, we don't have other folks creating prototypes or we don't have other folks creating mock-ups we don't have other folks building those experiences we should be like them we should have our own box where we operate and where we add value how do you think about helping folks get away from that frame of thinking because i think for many folks it feels very reasonable and it maybe is very reasonable. Yeah. Um, actually, one one note on the job security angle, I've, I've felt it and seen it in having conversations. And it wasn't until I talked to Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Asgis, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, actually, but I had a conversation with her last week and she just put that little circle on it. It was like, it's job security. And I said, wow, that's mm. the undercurrent that I've been feeling. So I want to give her credit where credit is due. And how do we help people move out of that frame is a very difficult question. Um, If you think about what it takes to make and deploy a real and useful product or service, I think there's sort of like a hierarchy that kind of matches the professional evolution of some of the different functions that we need. You can't launch a product or service, at least in the technological context that we tend to work in and talk about, unless you can actually construct something with code. Mm -hmm. First wave of products, primarily engineering driven. At some point, what a product was proliferated and we needed someone who could kind of actually prioritize and constrain and define that proliferation of technological things. And you had product management. Product management works. Uh, I think it was a Peter Merholz quote, like user, re- user experience exists because product management is insufficient. 
but product managers had so much work that paying attention to how users think what they need and what the expression of a product could or should be was not something that could fit into the purview of their solidifying industry. Hence mm-hmm. UX, uh, or at least like a renewed importance of design and interaction design. And then research comes out on top and it's an even smaller, at least where it came from in our sort of professional sphere, it feels like an even smaller piece of the puzzle. It's the designers, the UXers who couldn't get access to the users or didn't have the time because they had to be designing screens all day to actually understand what was happening in the user context and make the right kind of models, deriving insights, pushing product development from that. So that's where we came from. And a lot of times uh, people who get into research see it as if it's a field as solidified as design or product management or engineering. And I think the reality is that it does have a clear professional skill set, but a lot of what we did that defined what made researchers researchers in terms of getting access to users, structuring and scheduling and designing how we actually talked and work with them. Those pieces are out of our hands now. Hmm. Technology vendors and shared knowledge are making it so much easier for anyone on a team to do that. So I don't know if I have reassuring words um, in terms of solidifying what what we should do in terms of prof- like trying to protect a professional identity. My my feeling is that we need to move up the stack of complexity and just sort of accept that the basic lower level, shorter time scale decisions relating to users are increasingly accessible to and probably better belonging to the product team at large. Hmm. So, so this is interesting. This, this touches on an idea that's been rumbling through the back of my head. And maybe I'm maybe it's semantics here. Maybe maybe it's not. But this this idea I have about research democratization versus learning democratization. Maybe even just at the at the top line, research versus learning. And if there is a way to talk through like a menu of learning, where what we what we term user research or UX research is a piece of that menu. It's part of the menu. And really what we're talking about on the whole is just learning. How do we learn in different ways? And you talk about moving up, moving up, and I think in, in some senses being more strategic with research. I, I, wonder, I wonder how much the reframing of learning versus research may help or may not help. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, everyone everywhere is trying to learn and make the right decisions. And mm-hmm. what made our flavor of research special and where there's still um, a real and important professional skill set and one that's not entirely easy to get a hold of is learning from and with the people who are using our products and services. Um, access is becoming much, much, much easier. Um, the mode of doing that kind of learning, the rigor isn't necessarily something that belongs to us, I think. I think 
whatever your decision, you're usually um, a critical thinker in any field has some goal or some key question, and they do the best that they can to find the right evidence, form an opinion, orient themselves on what's happening, make the decision and act. So from that regard, like, yes, we are a learning profession. And right now we've specialized on learning from and with users. And if you pull it back to that kind of learning, uh, it really does open up the space where you can play, but it's the place where everybody else is also playing. So then the question is, what is it that we might be able to provide uniquely to learning broadly, let's say in the context of a product team around various elements of product strategy, product marketing, product design, uh, that other team members can't already do. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think there, you know, you said something which I was going to ask about, but I think maybe can, can tail into this response from me. You said the rigor doesn't belong to us. That gets my mind thinking about a number, going down a number mm. of paths where I think one, there's a, there's a bit of being able to step back and to be able to say this thing that we hold on to, that we love, that we own, rigor, the ability to, to not just, you know, hop on a sales call and hear a customer say one thing and then have a team jump on that and deliver <laughs> that thing. Like that drives researchers crazy. But there's also a bit of reality of trying to deliver value in the business. Whereas, you know, sometimes being so nitty gritty, the cost benefit just doesn't doesn't line up, right? Mm. If you're trying to be extremely rigorous. But on the other hand, like what that phrase also brings up to me is is there is a definition of rigor from the research angle that perhaps doesn't I don't want to say there's rigor in someone adopting a, another type of learning where they're not as meticulous in their research as a researcher would be but perhaps there's a level of rigor in the depth of learning that's just a bit foreign or maybe not foreign to researchers, but just not part of the research practice. The rigor that belongs to us is a, a flavor of the kind of critical thinking that anyone who is taking their work seriously should do. And the learned skill here, I think what it is that makes a good researcher do their job particularly well is that they're, is um, just a difficult process of applying that rigor and critical thinking to human input and the ability to synthesize patterns in this qualitative, <coughs> excuse me, um, like narrative way mm -hmm. um, and to synthesize these things into structured models, uh, visual, tangible artifacts and outputs of that thinking coupled with a sensibility and a learned experience about which of these things are actually important 
and relevant to what the team is trying to do. Hmm. So it's not to dismiss what researchers are doing as the same old kind of rigor that anyone has, but it's to make sure that we don't frame the conversation about research as if we are the ones who are the only critical thinkers, the only ones who do our work in a rigorous way. Yeah. Which, which I, I think is, it's a tough conversation, right? Like the, whether, whether you've gone through college, university, being educated in this field, or came from another field and have been doing research for any length of time, there's a, I don't think it's only pride, but there is this ongoing desire and need for for research to be able to stand out in this space. Like there's lots of conversations about maturing as a practice. What does it mean for us? And so rigor has is so central to so much of what we talk about in research that any level of new definition or detachment from that is is essentially a bit of an existential crisis for research that's so that's that's really difficult yes i have been thinking about and in some ways going through this crisis um because my primary in-house work has been with smaller startups uh teams under a thousand usually closer to three or five hundred mm -hmm. and I think back to the work that I could do rigorously, which I owned completely in my first role as a researcher. Mm -hmm. um, usability test, as an example. We would make sure that our prototypes were ready. And back then, I don't know if 2011, we had many of the digital prototyping tools. At the time, we literally printed our screens on paper, had another piece of paper with a square cut into it, and slid paper screens behind uh, that little window for our paper prototype to be able to do usability tests before we built anything. Hmm. Put custom surveys on Facebook and Craigslist, tried to screen away the scammers and find the right kind of people who could give us the right kind of input, invited them to the office, had to arrange everything about how they participated, uh, set up the video recording, a camera to point at the paper prototype, mm -hmm recorded the sessions, went through, tagged all the best parts out just by splicing little quick time bits, tried to put together this summary thing. That was one area where you could clearly express rigor and find crystal clear insights. Again, these are short time cycle decisions. Um, and now the designers prototypes are already in Figma, already wired up. You go to your vendor of choice, click a few buttons. I'm trivializing here, but, uh, yeah, you know, in the broad strokes of things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. buttons. And then a few hours later, you can have highlight clips of where the major problems were and start to formulate what you want to say about it. And I think that that is one example where the kind of rigor that we used to employ, but we still do employ, um, like the need and how and where we show those skills are some ways collapsing underneath us. Hmm. 
And it's these kind of decisions now that because they're constrained by known forms of work, uh, better shared understanding of what a usability test is and what it's even trying to do, better expectations from the teams that need to consume it, that we should be, quote unquote, democratizing this work away. Um, because where you need the rigor and judgment has shifted. Uh, I think if you found the wrong types of people and you didn't know which pieces to prototype and you didn't know which task flows to work through, you could do a usability test and get nothing from it. Uh, you could just not yeah. be looking at the right places. It's much, much harder to do that now. It's much, much harder to <laughs> mess it up now because we mm -hmm. as an industry know so much more about how that thing works. So when we talk about the democratization, I use that as an example of the, say like the shifting constraints of what it is that we do and can own as researchers. And for me, that's a low leverage place. And I try not to start from the perspective that we are the ones who should say, for example, own or have owned usability testing to uh, deign to give it to other teams from the top down, but that they need this input to be able to do their jobs well. They know they need it. It's nearly exp it's exponentially less difficult for them to get it. And for me, it's it's the place to get this work off of our plate so that we can start applying that rigor at higher level problems, problems of understanding users and making sure that teams have shared understanding from what their team is doing all the way up to what the organization is trying to accomplish strategically, starting to look mm -hmm. at that, what I call like messy, invisible middle right now of with what's usually just uh, characterized by a cascade of fuzzy OKRs that don't really tell you about what's going on or what you should be doing. So that's when I talk, when I think about democratization and rigor, this sort of like the larger conversation that I'm thinking about is where should we be playing? I like that. I feel like the, in the context of this conversation, I feel like we've just taken off and we're getting to 30,000 feet and there's so much more of the journey to go, but because of time, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of get us to to try and wrap this all together, and and maybe at a further date we can continue on. But this has been an in, yeah an insightful conversation has me thinking about a number of different points. But as you wrap up here, Dave, what's what's that one thing that you hope someone listening takes from this conversation? I think that the landscape of how research works and what it should be doing is shifting and in some ways shifting out from under us. And it won't disappear underneath us like quicksand immediately. The activities that used to define a large core of our work, but as much as we want to try and hold on to it and keep it, it's, it's not going to be helpful. Um, in my mind, I don't like the word or the conversation about democratization when we can ask if it's something that we should or shouldn't do. But I think it's generally for any forward-looking team trying to move in a more interesting and strategically important direction, democratizing is absolutely the right thing to do. And the way to start that is look at which pieces of research have become generally understood 
which pieces of research have expected and well-formed outputs and to look at how to structure that work for your teammates so that they can handle it themselves with the least amount of help possible. But at first they're going to need help. Yeah. I love it. I think this conversation hopefully started, started to open up some, some new avenues of thinking for folks because this topic, again, it, it's talked about all the time, but the point of intersection can be very different. And I think what we're getting to here is like a very, very much a more strategic point of intersection than, than being super tactical. So thanks for, thanks for delving into this and, and sharing your perspective. I, I really enjoyed it. Dave, where can people find you online? Ah, um, I guess the places that I play primarily are Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm Dave Hora on LinkedIn and Dave's research on Twitter. And um, the website for my consulting practice is davesresearch.com, where I've started posting a monthly newsletter trying to zoom us out and help understand what's happening um, in the larger research landscape. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope that you learned something new and helpful and thought-provoking from that discussion with Dave. That's all for now. I'll catch you on the next episode of Scaling Research.